Today's reading is from Amos 5, 10 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What an amazing week in Kansas City, right? Once again, like Mike said, I don't know how long that's going to take to get old, but it was, it was pretty amazing. I walked out of the downtown campus during our lunch hour and saw this. And I don't care who you are, even if you're not a baseball fanatic, you can't help but get carried away in all the excitement. I mean, hundreds of thousands, not just thousands, but hundreds of thousands of people from all these different parts of our city converged together. They waited for hours in traffic. Some left their cars on the freeway, right? Only in Kansas City. <laughs> Others were waiting. Like, what? How is, that, how is that socially acceptable, right? <laughs> Others waited for hours in lines. All that they, they could celebrate what was almost the unthinkable, the underrated Royals. Everybody was downplaying the Royals, but now we're the world champions, right? Yeah, woohoo, right? <laughs> And as we were thinking and, you know, as you're standing there and you're at Union Station and whether you saw it on the news, you saw it on someone's Facebook profile or you were there in person, you hear these champion players and the staff talking about how they finally brought it home. But there was one thing I just couldn't shake even amidst all the celebrating. Standing in the background, you see Union Station. It's a beautiful structure. The city almost rarely united to celebrate, but its very structure in Union Station tells a story of a city divided. It was the beginning of the 20th century, and Kansas City was well on its way to being the railroad, not a railroad, but the railroad hub of the nation. And thousands of workers had made their way to Kansas City to make a life and make a living. But there were a whole slew of folks who when they finally arrived, found little semblance of either. One group who ran into the invisible boundaries that often surround economic opportunity were Mexican-Americans. The railroad company had promised jobs, jobs of laying track, jobs of building iconic structures like Union Station at 1901. But there was a catch. Written into their job contract was the requirement to live in some of the least desirable parts of town which were strategically distanced from the white residential neighborhoods. 
With no other options, Mexican-Americans were forced to live in these flop houses that the railroad company had provided in neighborhoods that lacked plumbing, basic sewer facilities, and electrical systems. One of these neighborhoods was our very own West Side neighborhood right down here in Kansas City. After a few years, the employers had actually overcrowded this particular neighborhood. And with their poor construction, the slum conditions, they got out of hand. And it became so awful that city leaders were trying to figure out what to do. They had to do something. So what do they do? Those in power of the West Side Council at that time thought it would be a great idea if police visited the homes and arrested those found living in unsanitary conditions. Really, that's the solution. But you see, a lack of understanding as to why a neighborhood is the way that it is will always lead to abuse, the perpetuation of stereotypes. Intentionally, it kept Mexican-Americans within poor living conditions. And this also made the West Side neighborhood and Mexican-Americans more genuinely, or generally, the object of disdain for a majority of Kansas Cityans, of white. Kansas Cityans. What's really painful, though, is when you dive into the history, you see government officials, business leaders, and churches collaborating together to create oppressive economic systems that then took on a life of their own. Listen to this. This was in a public welfare report of Kansas City, Missouri during the time. This is what it, what it says. When injured, they, speaking of Mexican-Americans, usually do not receive sufficient treatment in hospitals. They frequently do not receive justice at the hands of the police and courts because they don't have an interpreter of their language. They do not readily become acquainted with American institutions and customs because there are not sufficient means available for them. Can you imagine going to the hospital with your child and then being turned away? Can you imagine being harassed by the justice system because of your ethnicity, your skin color, or your language barrier? After working 14 hours being called lazy and dirty, being always on the edge of financial crisis and feeling absolutely powerless to bring any change. The painful truth is that for so many today, and even some within this congregation, to be clear, this is reality. And the Bible has a lot to say when it comes to the plight and the pain of the vulnerable. So much so that theologians have seen a biblical quartet of the vulnerable, including widows, orphans, immigrants, and the economically disadvantaged, the poor, the poor. These are called the quartet because they're so oftenly mentioned together in the Old Testament. For example, God says through the prophet Zechariah, this is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. And this should get our attention. When we come to look at our city, when we come to look at our country through a biblical lens, we don't assess the flourishing of our city or our country just by looking at its GDP or a recent simple jobs report. But we must assess our city by asking these types of questions. Are the vulnerable flourishing in our city? Are there equitable opportunities for those who are typically oppressed and forgotten? Here's another one. Are the more resourced 
leveraging their authority, their influence, their financial resources for those who lack opportunities. Are God's people doing justice like Zachariah says or not? Over the past couple of weeks, we've been in a series called Neighborly Love, and we've been exploring together how your work and your contribution wherever God has you is crucial to understanding how we obey the command to love our neighbor as ourself. And so oftentimes we think in individualistic terms, you know, these one-on-one interactions, and look, there's a place for that. But how does our collective calling as the people of God fit into that? We've already seen over the past few weeks, how God has designed each and every one of us for unique contribution. Whether you're a student, an artist, a parent, an employee, an employer, a retiree. But he's also designed us to bring our diverse gifts together in collaboration for the good of our common home. And this, this is one of the best ways, I think, to understand the word economy. This collaboration of diverse gifts for the good of our common home. You see, every morning we wake up to an economic world, whether we like it or not. And if we long to be faithful and thoughtful to love our neighbor as ourselves, as Christ calls us, if we long to seek the good of our city as God commands us, if we long to see the gospel touch every square inch of our lives, not just our private lives in the back of our room with our devotions, as the gospel compels total life and community transformation, then we're going to have to talk about economics. And if we're going to talk about economics as followers of Jesus, we're going to have to talk about justice for the vulnerable. And this is what we're going to discover this morning. Loving your neighbor means standing with the vulnerable. Loving your neighbor means standing with with the vulnerable. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn with me to Amos 5? Amos 5. We're going to talk about three components because pastors like to talk about threes. I'm sure there's more, but we're going to talk at least about three components that must be present in our lives, okay, if we're ever to stand with the vulnerable and so stand with God. So where do we start? We don't just start with seeing the world differently and how we see the world. We need to start with who we see in the world. Now, with the addition of a newborn in our family, and everybody's sending out Christmas cards. They'll be pouring into your mailbox or your inbox here sooner or later. We figure we'd join the crazy and get some family pictures as well. And with two kids under the age of two, it was an experience, right? <clears throat> we probably had five minutes to get pictures with two kids under two. And when my wife finally started showing me some of the pictures, what do I look for first? I look for me. <laughs> Not to see if I look good, because that's not the option. The option is, do I look terrible? Um, And let's be real. Don't act like you're being judgmental here. That's what we all do. We look for ourselves in the picture first. But what the gospel does is it transforms. When we come to look at the economic picture of our neighborhood, we don't come looking at ourselves first. We actually come and ask the question, and we go seeing the vulnerable. Let's look for the vulnerable. Look with me at at Amos chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Amos says, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you've built houses of hewn stone, and you've, you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vine- vineyards, but you shall not 
drink their wine, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. What's going on here? Israel was experiencing a time of economic growth. You know, the, the housing market hit a boon. They were building these hewn stone homes, which were very luxurious with these extended vineyards, right? And luxury had reached new heights. But at what cost did this economic growth come about? The rich in Israel were leveraging their resources to accumulate permanent ownership of more and more of the land, which was interestingly outlawed by God in Leviticus chapter 25. Why does God outlaw this? Seems like an unnecessary economic barrier, okay? Well, because in an agricultural society, private property and its cultivation was a way for every family to, to participate in wealth creation and family care, to produce enough crops to care for your family, and to trade the surplus for other needs. What's worse, though, is that once the wealthy did accumulate more and more land, they leased it back to these poorer agricultural families with an interest. And that's where we see this tax language. It was a tax on the grain that they were producing, which was also outlawed in Deuteronomy 23. There's economics all over the Bible. The tax was so great, though, that many families defaulted on their loans. Now, what we can miss when we go to ancient Israel is that if you default on your loans in American culture now, you just incur bad credit. But then, if you defaulted on your loans, you had to sell your family into slavery until you paid off your debts. This is what Amos actually talks about in Amos chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Subsistence living wasn't even possible. You had to sell everything, even yourself, just to survive. And whenever the poor would reach out to the justice system, which in that day, the judicial hearings took place at the city gate. That's why in Amos 5, you see this word gate showing up all over the place. The elders would gather together and they would hear cases and make judicial decisions at the city gate. But instead, of hearing the poor, they turn a blind eye and line their pockets with poverty are you, or with, uh, with, with bribes. Are you beginning to see how this is more than just one person or individual decisions? This is a collaboration for unjust gain at the cost of the vulnerable. This is economic oppression, a system of economic oppression. And this is what it means to be vulnerable. To be in a place where you have no voice, no one who stands up for you, no one who looks upon your plight. And God is saying, don't you dare turn a blind eye any longer. Don't you dare. He's the voice whom Amos is the spokesman, and he's pointing to this abuse of the vulnerable. And he says, look at the whole picture. Some of you may be really great and flourishing, but at what cost? Look at the vulnerable. And you can be sure that when God looks at Kansas City, he sees the vulnerable, whether they're cared for or ignored, whether they're empowered or oppressed. And each of us should pause here with God's economic lens and ask ourselves, do you see the vulnerable? 
Do you see the vulnerable? Who you see will impact how you see your neighborhood. And because we live in a culture that intentionally separates, hides, distorts, or mutes the vulnerable, we have to be all that more diligent in our intentionality of seeing the vulnerable, of hearing the voiceless, and not turning away. But the difficulty with when you actually start to see, when you start to reorient your sights with the vulnerable at the center, is that it disrupts your life. It alters your worldview. It'll change your economics. Which is why we can't just see the vulnerable, but to stand with the vulnerable, if we have any hope, we have to also become vulnerable ourselves. We have to enter into the pain of the vulnerable. Now, I know most of us in here are very well aware that in the United States, we live and breathe in what's called a free market economy, okay? Which, in my own opinion, is currently one of the best broken systems in a broken world, which kind of gives you hope, right? (laughs) Um, In a free market economy, what a community demands of a particular product and service helps determine the supply and the pricing of that particular product and service. What this enables is diversity of competition and low barriers of entry for entrepreneurs and new business. This understanding, whether we realize it or not, is often what underlies the middle class in our accusation of the vulnerable, that if they would just work hard and pull themselves up from their own bootstraps, then they could be just as well off as the rest of us. But there's part of the story we're missing if we just stop there. We don't live in a perfect world with a perfect system. While the doors of the free market economy are unlocked and opened, there's a gate at the end of the drive (laughs) that's locked, a hidden economy of race that keeps many minorities from ever engaging the free market economy in the first place. For example, one key to economic advancement still today as it was in Amos's day is governmentally enforced ownership of private property. You see how this was true in Amos's day and how this is going to be true in our day? Among other benefits, why do we go and try to own a home? If you've ever sought to own property, you've had this conversation. You build capital, you gain status as someone in the middle class when you own your own home, and you have the opportunity to raise your credit rating and so build rapport with banking institutions for future loans. You're setting yourself on an economic trajectory for greater opportunity. So what happens when a whole segment of the population is kept from from able to own their own home, from being able to own their own home? Well, unfortunately, you don't have to use your imagination. You just got to know your history here in Kansas City and really the nation abroad. For starters, minorities were excluded from access to mortgages to purchase homes by the federal government. It's about to get real, folks. Okay, so hold on with me. In 1934, Congress created the Federal Housing Administration, and it existed for other reasons, but also to help ensure private mortgages for many of the returning World War II veterans by providing a drop in the interest rate and also enabling a smaller down payment so you could purchase a home. And look, this is really good. Okay, this is really important. It's not a matter of what they provided. It's who they didn't provide this for. Listen to how one article describes this process. 
the FHA, which is known as the Federal Housing Association, right, administration, had adopted a system of maps that rated neighborhoods according to their perceived stability. On the maps, green areas, rated A, indicated in-demand neighborhoods. Remember our free market economy, in-demand. That, as one appraiser put it, lacked a single foreigner or Negro. These neighborhoods were considered excellent prospects for insurance. Neighborhoods where black people lived were rated D and were usually considered ineligible for FHA backing. They were colored in red, not green, red. Neither the percentage of black people living there nor their social class mattered. Black people were viewed as a contagion. This process, which came to be called redlining, maybe you've heard this word a time or two, went beyond FHA-backed loans and actually defined the whole mortgage industry in our nation, which excluded most minorities from legitimate means of obtaining a mortgage and so excluded them from the opportunity of home ownership and so excluded them from participating in one of the greatest economic boons in our nation's history. And what many of us don't even realize is that the man who really perfected this whole process was a Kansas City local, J.C. Nichols, my man, right? You know, who designed the plaza and all the neighborhoods that surround it. First started in the private sector and later took on a prominent national position to influence the country's neighborhood design. And when you come to understand how crucial property ownership is, and impacting generational wealth. If your grandfather owned his home and so had a lower interest rate, so he had more disposable income that he was able to put aside for a college fund, then that impacted his son, who once he died, was able to inherit that home, was able to have less college debt. Then that generational wealth was able to be passed on to his son, who was able to inherit that home with even more disposable. You see how this begins to snowball. And you can begin to see how the generational wounds have contributed to areas focused of poverty in our city. This isn't just a neat insight from the past that breaks our hearts. It helps us understand our present economy today and why neighborhoods are the way they are. You know, the residue from redlining, it's still felt in the racial makeup of our neighborhoods. The Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service they have a, um, a demo demo I can't even say this word this morning. demographics research group that compiled the 2010 national census data to give a picture of the racial makeup of the communities across the nation. Here's what we find in Kansas City. So <clears throat> as you can see from the legend on the bottom right here, the blue dots represent white folks. The green dots represent black folks. The red dots represent Asian folks. The yellow dots represent Hispanic folks. Do you notice all the way from downtown, and it goes all the way to 135th Street, <laughs> is there any sort of racial divide that anyone else is seeing up there on the screen? This should make us wake up. This isn't something in the past. This is impacting us today. This is the world we live in today. And the reality is that redlining hasn't even really stopped. It's just evolved. 
There was an article this last month in the New York Times that highlighted how banking institutions deliberately keep their branches out of low-income neighborhoods and what's replaced them but the predatory lending of payday loans, which involve deceptive practices and the exorbitant interest rates that leave vulnerable families enslaved to debt. Let me give you a picture into this. Just to give you a quick window, this is how horrible these loans are. The worst credit card you can legally have has an annual percentage rate, so that's an APR, of 36%. The average payday loan in Missouri has an APR of 453%. That's where you go when you're in crisis. And the current maximum rate allowable in KC is an APR of 1,950%. How is that legal? Actually, we have a, a gentleman here who's been a part of the process to help make some of those percentages illegal where they prey on the vulnerable. And the way that these institutions have been so corruptly engaged in the justice system to enable those percentages to stay makes you sick. Unfortunately, though, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we could talk about restrictive covenants of property deeds that explicitly outlawed underneath the penalty of a fine or confiscation of property if you were to sell your house to a person of color. We could talk about studies that have proven how still today, if your name sounds non-white, when a resume comes across the desk, there's good chances you're not going to get called in for an interview. We could talk about how 75% of all people in prison for drug offenses are black or Latino, although whites are statistically the majority consumers of illegal drugs, and how once you have a felony on your record, your opportunities to be seriously considered for a job fall through the floor. Now, when we start walking through those types of things, the problem is instantly one of two responses happen. Our defenses spark up, and we feel guilty, we feel overwhelmed, or we start jumping directly to solutions. Let's fix this, let's do it, let's do it now. But look, before we get into any of that, I want you to hear neither scripture nor myself is calling anyone in here to feel guilty because of the specific racial class you're a part of. White people have a culture and a race, and you don't have to be guilty for that. But we do need to listen Instead, I want each and every one of us this morning, I want you to ask the question of yourself, are you willing to become vulnerable? To hear the history, are you willing to become vulnerable? This isn't about burying anyone in guilt or calling anyone to be the white savior, okay? Let's just be clear. We have to become vulnerable. To become vulnerable, though, first means we need to listen rather than think we've got all the answers. And this is a heavy history to hear if you grew up in white majority culture, but it's an even heavier history to live if you're a minority. So we need to address that and be honest about this. Secondly, we need to be willing to repent. Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote an article in The Atlantic, and listen to this summary of history. 250 years of slavery, 90 years of Jim Crow, 60 years of separate but equal, 35 years of racist housing policy. Until we reckon with our compounding moral debts, America will never be whole. Our moral debts. 
It's an important component of the economy. And oftentimes we can come with this and we can say, look, this isn't my fault. And we jump to accusation, all right? And we can completely ignore the economic advantages that many have been able to enjoy because of the economic abuses of the past that have never been reconciled, the generational wealth that's been passed down, status, the continued cultural biases and political policies that continue to work in favor of the placement of whites in our culture. And look, I know how quickly I am to want to feel like I deserve everything that I've earned. Thank you very much. Instead, I need to remember that not all of my advancement merely came because I was a self-disciplined person. But there's a reality that for a majority of the white culture, we got to swim with the current rather than against it. That doesn't mean you weren't swimming, okay? But, but you got to go with it, and you didn't have to swim against the current. And if we cannot acknowledge that, if we cannot be broken with our minority brothers and sisters, then we need to repent. Look, Mexican-American railroad workers in Kansas City weren't forced into squalid conditions simply because white people didn't like Mexicans. But by cutting corners on housing, by not providing basic services, certain people made more money. And we have to be willing to even repent of the greed that's underneath a lot of the social structure and the racism that still pervades in our culture. Our fear of losing our influence it's greed. We need to repent. Thirdly, only when you're willing to listen, only when you're willing to repent, are you ever able to authentically then lament. You see? We have to listen. We have to repent first. And only then can you weep with those who weep in the injustice of the past and today. To bemoan the racism that still presides. To be broken with, with God over what God sees in Kansas City. That is still the very demographical makeup of our city. I don't have to go back to the 18th century or the 19th century or the 20th century. We're in the 21st century. And it just looks different, but it's exactly the same. And with that, I want to lead us in a short time of silence because... Rather than just talking to you about how we're not supposed to talk too much, <laughs> let's be quiet for just a minute and let's listen, let's repent, lament. So would you bow your heads with me? We're just going to take a minute or two just to sit in silence over the brokenness that is our city, that is our country. God, we don't care enough. Many of us don't even understand and we don't want to understand. Forgive us. 
Help us to listen to those whom you've put around us to remind us what it means to be vulnerable, to remind us that we live in a terribly broken and unjust world and that it ought not to be this way. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. But even after we sit in the silence, there's one more thing we must do if we are ever to stand with the vulnerable. I've always really appreciated the prophet Amos, not just for what he said, but for who he was. He didn't have vocational training as a prophet. His training was as a shepherd, as the more you get to know him. He wasn't looking for the next prophetic gig. This wasn't his opportunity to find the spotlight. But he was compelled when he saw the gates of justice sound with corruption, when he saw his fellow man experience oppression. There's an interesting verse here in chapter 5, verse 13. Amos says, Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. He's saying, those who are wise... They're probably going to be quiet because if they speak the truth of what they're seeing, this culture is so broken that it's probably going to bring destruction on them and their household. And even with that, Amos is shouting this from the mountaintops. <laughs> so what he's saying is, I don't care what the wise are doing. I'm going to do what is just at this moment. Because even true wisdom will not let you stand by the wayside. You see, if we have any hope of standing with the vulnerable, it can't just be seeing the vulnerable or becoming vulnerable, but we also must have the courage to stand. It takes courage. You know, the difficulty with courage is that it's not something you can just muster when the task calls for it. Courage bubbles out of who you already are when the circumstances arise. And Amos understands this. So basically, if we want to have courage, we first must cultivate character. Look at what Amos says in chapter 5, verse 15. Hate evil, love good. Hate evil, love good. And establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of, just, uh, of Joseph. You see, character always precedes courage, always. And Amos calls us to become the kind of people who genuinely hate evil and love good as God defines it. There were people in Israel who defined good very differently than God did. They had phenomenal homes, great vineyards. This is the good life. Not according to God. Not at that point not at the cost of the vulnerable. As Christians, how we create wealth matters. Wealth in and of itself is not intrinsically evil, but how you create wealth matters. And as followers of Jesus, we don't even just describe what is broken and what is good. This is the terms of, a, this involves your affections. Love good, not describe it. Hate evil. When you hate something, it doesn't bring you to your knees. It pops you to your feet and you stand with a fist raised saying, this isn't right. And look, okay, character has to precede courage because no system, whether it be economic, social, or political, 
will ever be able to curb the tide of injustice in our culture without people of character. You see? There's always a way around the system. You can always skirt and give plenty of excuses. The question is, are you a person of character? But even still, good intentions aren't enough, right? Before we can go on establishing justice in the gate, we need to also grow in wisdom. If there's anything we've learned from the Red Cross who spent some $500 million in aid to Haiti and themselves admitting they've done hardly any change, we know we need to grow in wisdom. And one of those next steps to grow in wisdom so we don't hurt in our good intentions to help is to read Brian Fickert's book, When Helping Hurts. If you've not read it, I encourage you to pick it up as he seeks to bring biblical principles and thoughtful community development and care for the vulnerable. Also, if you haven't received it already, it should be in your, your inbox by the end of the day. We'll be sending out a link to Right Now Media that has some of Brian Fickert's talks from the Common Good Conference that we had a couple weeks ago and where he describes the complexity of poverty as the gospel calls us to be engaged thoughtfully, not mindlessly compassionate. Hmm? And with all of this, look, I know some of you have been deep in the trenches here, and you've been wrestling through this, and I think a question we need to all ask ourselves is when we get into this, this there's a lot of dynamics of power that come here. And I want to ask you a question, and I want you to be asking it of yourself, Who's, who's flourishing in your life because of your power? Who is flourishing in your life because of your power? Because we all have power. We all have influence. When you look in the mirror, do you see pride? Do you see power? You know, anybody? Cool runnings? Sorry. <laughs> we all have... <laughs> Island of Refuge. We were heavy. as just, you know, giving us a break. We all have power. We all have influence as image bearers of God. This is who we are. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter where you fit on the org chart. It doesn't matter whether you're retired, the employer, or the employee. We all have power. We all have influence. Who in your life is flourishing because of your power? Is anyone besides you and your family flourishing because of your power? Maybe that means for you befriending someone who has no friends. Maybe for you, that's joining the Neighborhood Association and being a voice for the vulnerable and the voiceless. Maybe for you, that could mean participating in the Thanksgiving bag collection. This is leveraging your personal economic situation for those who are disenfranchised in our neighborhood. It means sacrificing a happy hour with a friend to actually leverage your resources for the good of our neighborhood. We need to step up. We need to be engaged in these things. For others, that may mean running your business with an eye toward the vulnerable. It may mean being aware of your racial biases and hiring practices. It may mean seeking under-resourced neighborhoods for employees. I mean, no one can tell you what this looks like in your life, and it's going to take self-assessment to be sure. I trust the power of the Holy Spirit to do his work of conviction here. But where is God asking you to step up? Are you listening? The church is here to deploy you. We can't go out and do everything together, but in our unique spheres of influence, how is God calling you to steward your power for the vulnerable's flourishing? That's the individualistic response, which is important. 
but there's also a collective response. And as the church, we need to continue to work on the role of repentance. For too many years, the church within Kansas City, specifically white evangelicals, have seen this conversation as difficult to engage, and so we've under-equipped so many of us in being faithful to follow Jesus in our economics. We need to do better, and I promise that we're going to continue to dive deeper into this and understand how God has called us to impact thoughtfully every square inch of our lives, including our economic reality in our neighborhoods. You see, as Christians, we're called to be agents of healing in a broken world, and race is right at the heart of so much economic oppression in our country. Anybody who's a foreigner who's become an immigrant sees this, knows this. We have to do the hard work of learning so we can learn to do the hard work more thoughtfully. Look, I've heard from so many of you that you've walked through the doors, and the moment you came in, you felt loved, you felt embraced, but... If we're ever to be a church of neighborly love, that means we cannot ignore the vulnerable and their flourishing in our midst. And we should, of all people, know better. The church of all places are a group of people who gather together and admit, hey, we're vulnerable and we're helpless. And that God saw us in our vulnerability and then he became vulnerable when he took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and he died for us and every privilege we have in the gospel, we unequivocally admit we did not earn and yet we seek to leverage. And God does what only he can do when he became not only the vulnerable but also the victor in defeating our greatest oppressor, our sin and all of our guilt and shame that's wrapped up in that such that when he arose three days later, the resurrected Christ calls us to new life, to now live out of gratitude, not guilt. Okay, when we step away from this conversation, we can step away with guilt. Don't. Step away with gratitude now for the vulnerable and live for the vulnerable because God has promised he is coming again one day to judge the living and the dead. And where will he be standing but with the vulnerable? The question remains for each and every one of us this morning. Will we be standing with him? Will we stand with the vulnerable? Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and the ploys of the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, not ours, yours forever. Amen.